I'm going to begin by reading from the next passage in Mark chapter 9 that we have been studying through, starting with verse 42. Mark chapter 9, verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell into the unquenchable fire where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than having two feet to be cast into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Welcome to today's sermon. The heading for this passage in my Bible reads, Warm Fuzzies. No, I'm kidding. It actually says, Dire Warnings. And that's quite serious. If you were to ask me, Gary, which would you rather preach? A, the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. B, the faith chapter, Hebrews 11. Or C, the dismemberment chapter, Mark 9. I'd probably not pick C, and that is why we preach verse by verse through the books of the Bible. In his farewell speech to the elders of the Ephesian church, Paul said, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And for Paul, that meant that nobody could say, but I wasn't warned about that. My preacher skipped that part. Truth informs. Truth motivates. And truth holds us accountable. And that includes hard truth. Now, obviously, I'm skirting around an issue, and that issue is, this is a hard passage. Why is it a hard passage? Well, actually, there are several reasons. First of all, there is a textual problem. What is the text? If you look at verse 44, and if you look at verse 46, probably in your Bible, those verses are in brackets with a side note that says something like not in the earliest manuscripts. So what do you do with that? Second, there's a lot in here about hell. And for some reason, that doesn't seem to be a fun topic to talk about. Third, the imagery that Jesus uses here feels like it's just over the top. I mean, you know, Dismemberment? Really? The Quran teaches that. 
And the Taliban is reinstituting that now in Afghanistan. But not in the Bible, except here. And fourth, the end of this passage is puzzling, especially the stuff about salt. One scholar said, these last two verses are the hardest part of the Gospel of Mark. Now, I'm still studying on it. But you know what? If that's the hardest part, we're in pretty good shape. <laughs> By itself, this passage feels kind of jarring. But the truth is, it's not by itself. It has a context. Jesus has been training the disciples, and we've been watching him as he's trained them in the previous chapters. But they have been just very slow to get it. Jesus announced to his disciples and to all the crowds in Mark 8, 34 and 35, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And it's very clear, Jesus is not talking about discipleship, but salvation that results in discipleship. He's talking about being saved, denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following Jesus. It, Jesus is not an add-on. I've got my life 90% laid out, and I just need that other 10% to make it complete, and Jesus, you can do that for me. No, Jesus is to be at the center of the entire uh, focus of your life. In chapter 9, Jesus removes any trace of pride or self-reliance that we might have in thinking that we're something special apart from him. Uh, in, in last week's study, uh, whether on one extreme where we cast out demons in Jesus' name or on the other extreme where all we do is extend a cup of water to somebody in need, if both are done for Jesus' sake, they were equally blessed. Why? Because the power to do anything that has eternal good attached to it is from Jesus. That's why. Without Jesus, nothing eternal would happen at all. And here's the thing. The gospel just displaces pride. Because if Jesus is not on the throne of my life, something else is. When I come to him and, play, and say, Lord, you are everything. When I place him on the throne of my life, when I believe in him as my savior, that doesn't mean I'm going to do everything perfectly from that point on, but that that is indeed the trajectory of my life. And, and Jesus does not allow us to think that I am going to be first in his kingdom, and he's okay with that. Pride is removed. There's no way for my soul to be saved and to keep Jesus off the throne consistently. Everything about me needs redemption. Everything. Everything. My hand, my feet, my eyes, my ears, my tongue, my whole body, my soul, my thoughts, my mind, my will. Nothing in me is untouched by sin. And here I stand before you, decaying. <laughs> but the point is, Jesus is in the process of redeeming everything. 
making all things new. The redemption of my soul and eventually the redemption of my body. Now, earlier in this very chapter, in Mark chapter 9, Jesus, uh, a man was casting out demons in Jesus' name. You remember the disciples were a little upset about that? Probably because uh, they had just been unable to cast out a demon themselves, whereas this guy was able to do it. Jesus' verdict about this man was given in verse 40. He who is not against us is for us. And in verse 41, so I'm getting, we're getting right into it, close to our text now. Verse 41 gives another concrete example of being for us. Whoever gives a cup of water to drink because of your name, as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. So as I mentioned before, whether it's casting out a demon in Jesus' name or giving a cup of water in Jesus' name, please notice that it is God who rewards with grace. And the cup of water does not earn any eternal reward. The grace that God showers on us is way out of proportion to a cup of water, isn't it? Any small and fruitful thing that we do in Jesus' name is eternal. Verse 42, where our text begins, picks up the thread with a stark example. He's given two examples of being for us. Here's a stark example of the opposite, being against us. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck he'd been cast into the sea. Wow, the imagery is very vivid. Uh, taking literally a donkey-drawn millstone, which is the heavy stone that grinds grain in a big mill going around in the circle uh, between the two stones, and putting that movable stone around the neck and throwing a spiritual abuser into a watery death. To my, no to my knowledge, uh, this kind of execution was never practiced in the ancient Near East. Jesus takes the heaviest stone and he matches it with the deepest water. And he says, that's what God thinks about spiritual abuse. Now, what does this mean? Who are the little ones? Is Jesus talking about babies here? No, I don't think so. I, now he's, he's addressed that just a few verses earlier when he blessed children. I think he's talking about a childlike believer, not a small child because they're not old enough to believe. And these are ones who believe in him. I think he's talking about more a baby believer. Remember how the Apostle John spoke to believers uh, in, in Jesus? 1 John 2, 1, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Uh, later on in the same chapter, Now little children abide in him. Then later, next chapter, little children, make sure no one deceives you. Little children, little children. And then the book ends this way in 1 John 5, 21. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Okay, little children. I think specifically in the context, I'd be very surprised if Jesus didn't have in mind those who destroy the faith and joy of other believers like the man in verse 38. Look back for just a moment at verse 35. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Taking a child, he set him before them, and taking him in his arms, he said to him, 
to them, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. And whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. Jesus said to him, John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to prevent him because he was not following us. You see the connection there? This guy was a childlike believer, I think, but he was not like us. He was not in our tribe. And I'm going to assume that he was not one of the 70. He was not a well-taught man. Because, maybe possibly he was a disciple of John the Baptist, but John never performed any miracles. So and this man is casting out demons, but he's doing so in Jesus' name. I am going to assume that this is a man who is not all that well-taught because Jesus is the teacher and he's not with Jesus. But even so, Jesus is the center of his passion. People whose style is different, who don't use the same words, who don't know the same stuff, because, hey, I mean, we're a Bible church. We know stuff, right? Right? Because, and we're proud of that, right? Spiritual smugness in no way pleases God. But these are people who have Jesus as the center of their passion, they honor him, and he accepts that and loves them for it and is protective of them. One of my seminary professors had led a young man to Christ who was kind of rough on the edges, and uh, he brought him to the church's men's group, and during the prayer time, uh, the man asked if he could pray too. He's a baby Christian. Can I pray? and uh, he was told yes and this is how the man prayed Lord this is Jim we met last week I don't know how to say things the way these guys do but I love you amen my professor said the rest of us used words that scraped the stratosphere Jim prayed Okay, before we get into verse 43, I want you to look at verses 44, 46, and 48. And this is going to sound like a teaching session more than a sermon, but just look at verses 44, 46, and 48. Okay, this is the audience response part. What's the saying? 44, 46, 48. What's the same? Yeah. Same words, right? What's different? The brackets. Do you see the brackets? Do you see the brackets on 44 and 46? Does your Bible have a notation in the margin about verses 44 and 46. If so, somebody tell me what your Bible says. Not in the original manuscript? Not found in important early manuscripts? Okay. Later manuscripts? Okay, repeat this. But the earlier manuscripts do not. So, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Every manuscript 
contains verse 48. The only question is, did Jesus say these words three times or one time? That's the issue. Verses 44 and 46, and I'll, I'll just tell you, they are truly not in any early manuscript, and they were probably incorporated by accident when a scribe thought Jesus' statement was copied incorrectly and was intended to be made not just uh, after the eye, but also after the hand and the foot and so forth. And, and I want to just say something about this. This is, this is called the art and science of textual restoration of, or textual criticism. And it's a, it's a pretty precise science. And I'm going to oversimplify something. And this, this is all bonus stuff today. But I'm going to oversimplify that there are three basic questions to ask about manuscripts. And, and we win on all three. How many manuscripts are there? How old are the manuscripts that we have? And third, what reading best explains the rise of the differences? And when you examine those things and look at the manuscripts, bingo, 99% of all questions are resolved. And just for comparison, we have more manuscripts and more early manuscripts than classical historians have to validate the storyline of ancient Greek history and Roman history. We've got more information in the New Testament, more manuscripts earlier than historians do to validate those storylines. It's pretty remarkable. Uh, so, uh, I, 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 wanted, I wanted you to be aware that when you see this kind of thing, don't let it throw you. Because this is a doc, not a doctrinal question about the inspiration of the Bible. This is instead a historical question about what the text is. And we know what the text is. So we can move that question off of the table. Now back to our study. Look at verse 42. Verse 42, don't entrap, don't abuse these little ones. But now in verses 43 to 47, don't entrap yourselves. Don't let it happen. Verse 43, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell, being unquenchable fire. In verse 45, if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. Verse 47, if your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. Why does Jesus say this in this way? Let me give you an illustration from child rearing. Training children includes a huge spectrum of interactions, right? Can I have an agreement with parents? Okay, a wide spectrum of interactions. If you were to see me when my children were at home during some times when I was training or disciplining them, you would think, oh, Gary is the most loving, patient dad on the planet. And there are other times when if you were to walk in and see me, you would wonder if you should call Child Protective Services. So the disciples are just not getting it. And we've seen several times in the context where they're not getting the point that Jesus is making. And I think when Jesus makes the statements that we just read, he is making the same point, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me, using different words 
because he's been telling them before, listen, listen. And now he says, listen. And he's getting their attention. Now, I'm not saying that this passage is reduced to the same meaning, only louder. There's more to it than that, clearly. But I am saying that the stakes are so high that Jesus wants to make sure that everybody hears what he's saying. However, these words have been misinterpreted and ridiculed and misapplied for centuries. If you look at verse 43, your hand, cut it off. All right? Now, for, first of all, I just want to say something uh, about the meaning here. Some versions say if your hand causes you to stumble or your foot or your eye causes you to stumble. Uh, my Bible translates it that way. Most of your Bibles probably say causes you to sin. That's a little bit better. That's a little closer to the meaning. Because if I stumble, the meaning of stumble in English is I, I just get up, dust myself off, and move on. The meaning here is that you get caused to, in, to be ensnared, like, a, like in a bear trap, your, your, your leg is caught. And you do not get up. You are entrapped. You're dead. That's, that's the meaning here. It's not something that slows you down. It holds you down until the end of it. So the stakes of this are just as high as, they, as heaven. Second, and just to be clear, Jesus is talking about heaven because he says it is better for you to enter life crippled. He doesn't say go through this life, but enter life, enter life, enter the kingdom of God. So those are the three things that he says. Jesus is talking about entering into eternal life that begins when you place your faith in Jesus Christ. It's salvation that is on his mind here. And Jesus says the same things about the foot and the eye. Better to cut off than to be cast into hell. Now, I want to talk about two things. First of all, I want to talk about what hell, the word for hell here. And secondly, I want to talk about what Jesus says about how not to go there. The word hell that's given three times in these brief verses is the word Gehenna. Uh, and by the way, Jesus was definitely a hellfire and brimstone preacher. So if you ridicule them, then be careful you're not ridiculing Jesus. The word Gehenna is an interesting history. And at the end, verse 48, he's the prophet, he quotes the prophet Isaiah. And he says, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And we get our word asbestos from the word quenched. First of all, what does Gehenna mean? Here's some background to this word. South of the walls of the city of Jerusalem is Geben Hinnom, the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom. Geben Hinnom was abbreviated Gehenna. During the days of kings Ahaz and Manasseh, children were sacrificed in the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom by burning them to death to the pagan god Molech. 2 Chronicles 28.3, Ahaz burned his sons in the fire. 2 Chronicles 33, Manasseh made his sons pass through the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom. Listen to God's indictment of apostate Israel. 
from Jeremiah chapter 2. Although you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your iniquity is before me, declares the Lord. How can you claim I am not defiled? I have not gone after the bales. Look at your way in the valley. Know what you have done. Isaiah wrote about 100 years earlier. The book of Isaiah has 66 chapters. The first 39 are about our sinful condition and need for a redeemer. Then chapters 40 through 66 are all about the coming redeemer who is both divine and human, who dies for our sins as we see in Isaiah 53. But then we'll, be, uh, we'll come and establish God's eternal kingdom. But, and I want you to get this, those who reject God's word are described in the last chapter of the book of Isaiah. Chapter 66. So Isaiah, last chapter of Isaiah. Last verse of the last chapter of Isaiah. This is how Isaiah ends, and this is what Jesus quotes here. Their worm will not die, and their fire will not be quenched, and they will be an abhorrence to all mankind. It's a pretty gruesome image. It would seem that the worm is eternal. I'm sorry, internal, like a, a maggot that consumes the flesh of a corpse. The fire is external, and it does not die because its work is never done. These are, these are not pleasant thoughts. That's why good King Josiah declared Gehenna unclean, unfit, never again to be used for any positive purpose, and it became the place where garbage and excrement were dumped, and the fires were constantly burning the garbage outside of Jerusalem. By the way, who would think that a nation that claimed to know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would sacrifice children for the sake of the worship of a God of convenience like Molech? Can you think of that kind of thing happening in our century? God said to the apostate Israelites, know what you have done. Now, my generation wants to soften Jesus' words about hell and make them less offensive. We, we sang with John Lennon, imagine there's no hell below us, right? Surveys show that people today are far more likely to believe in heaven than they are to believe in hell. Don't believe in heaven, not in hell. <laughs> our, our culture has definite opinions about what God should be like. God wants me to be happy. He is my cosmic Santa Claus. God would never judge anybody. And for them, what God created as an indictment of sin, Gehenna, is now seen as an indictment of God. Surely God wouldn't do that. Liberal theologians who know enough about the text to know better have also tried to soften what Jesus said about it, but they really can't. There, just listen to some facts. Every single New Testament writer speaks of, human, uh, of future punishment. 
The main source of the teaching about hell in the Bible is Jesus, the source of all love. He spoke more about hell than anyone in the Bible. He actually spoke more about hell than he did about heaven by volume. Jesus taught that hell was not originally designed for humans, but for the devil and his angels, a devil and his demons who had rebelled against God. And the very reason, please get this, the reason that Jesus came to die for our sins is so that we would not go there. Because of the reality of what it is. In other words, hell doesn't diminish or shouldn't diminish our understanding of God's love. It shows the vastness of God's love and what he was willing to go through to save us from it. This is the explicit claim of the best-known verse in the Bible, John 3, 16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And he had talked about hell in the previous context and in the context after that. Not perish in hell but have everlasting life. We see reflections of hell in the tears of Jesus over Jerusalem in his compassion for the lost in Paul's heartfelt plea that he wished he himself could be uh, 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 anathema for the sake of his fellow Israelites if they would only believe. We see it in Jude's exhortation, snatch others from the fire and save them. I hope you're understanding that the, the story of the Bible makes no sense if hell is not real. I said I wanted to talk about two things. First, I want to talk about hell. Secondly, I want to talk about what Jesus says about how not to go there. If your hand, and by the way, this includes the cutting off and gouging out language. <laughs> if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. Your foot, cut it off. Your eye, gouge it out. Does Jesus mean this literally? Now, this is where you all, what you all came for, right? Does Jesus mean this literally? One old rule of interpretation says, if the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense. Some add, lest it become nonsense. In this passage, the plain sense is understandable. But in light of everything else Jesus says, it does not make sense. Many scholars have made the points I'm about to make. First of all, Jesus often uses extreme statements to make important points. You must hate your father and mother if you're going to follow me, which means it's a, it's a statement of priorities. Cho choosing God over family. Even when he says, take up your cross, he doesn't mean get yourself crucified daily. It means dying to yourself. Very vivid way of picturing that. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. Figures of speech, not about cannibalism, but about communion. Jesus has already used parts of the body to make a point. Uh, in Matthew 6, 3, when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Actually, hands don't know anything. But Jesus is giving a picture, a beautiful picture of the beauty of of anonymous giving because God is the one who sees and rewards if Jesus were teaching salvation by amputation you'd see this all over 
the New Testament. Gospels, epistles, acts, but it's nowhere. Even circumcision is not forced upon Christians. And honestly, because we continue to sin, if he meant that literally, we'd all be blind and limbless. Right? Next, if it were literal, it wouldn't work. Self-mutilation does not change thinking patterns and produce holiness. Any sin that you could commit with one eye, you can commit with the other one, right? A little logic here? Okay. Jesus knew that. And besides, if you were to remove any body part as a physical, literal practice, then Jesus missed the main one. Here's the main one from James chapter 3. The tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the whole body, sets on fire the course of our life, and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles, creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. So if any body part's going to be removed, that's the one, right? But no, instead we're told to bridle the tongue. So what Jesus is doing here is called hyperbole. It's an over-the-top statement made to drive home an important truth. You know, it's 12 o'clock. I could eat a horse. I couldn't really eat a horse. It's raining outside. Is it raining cats and dogs? You know, the other day I, I died of embarrassment. The Gospel of Mark begins with a hyperbole. Mark 1, John came baptizing in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were, all were baptized in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Were the infants there confessing their sins? Were the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees there confessing their sins? Oh, well... Everybody knows that that's a figure of speech. Gary, literally everybody knows that? Okay, okay, okay. When I said that, I meant an overwhelming consensus of students, students of the Bible know that. Besides, how would you distinguish between your spiritual hand and your sinful hand? You know what has to be radically changed? My heart. Oh, no, wait a minute. That's an organ that pumps blood. It's my will. It's my brain. I'd have to cut out my brain. The parallel analogy is in Colossians 5, verses, Colossians 3, verses 5 and 6. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body, listen, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to, to what? Immorality? impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. 
For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. I hope you're getting the picture here. And maybe I'm belaboring what is now hopefully an obvious point. Jesus is not talking about cutting off. He's talking about cutting out. Cutting that out of your life. Things that will keep you from the gospel. And after you are saved, that will keep you from growing in the gospel. Remember when Jesus was approached by the rich young ruler? What must I do to be saved, to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, I'm going to paraphrase it. And in, in this, through this lens, Jesus was saying, all right, here's what you need to do. Cut off your possessions. Sell them. Give them to the poor. They're an idol in your life. They're keeping you from me. They're keeping you from denying yourself, taking up your cross and following me. Get rid of it. So it, that may be different for different people, but the idea is removing anything from your life that would be a wedge separating you from God and that would keep you from being saved and then from walking with him after you are saved. That would keep you from wanting to read the word, to pray, to worship with God's people. And by the way, Jesus would never have accepted the excuse, well, that's just the way I am. I can't help it. Or, I was born this way. Or, I was raised this way. I'm Irish. I'm Italian. I'm Catholic. Whatever. I'm Greek. Or, I'm from New York. I offend people. So, so sue me. My daughter lives in New York. <laughs> His point is, sin is not to be pampered. It's just not. Cut it out. But Gary, I really think in my heart of hearts I can hold on to this and control it. Lewis shared a good illustration that he heard. It's like someone who has a lion for a pet. And he thinks that that lion is fully under control until, until one day when the lion mauls him because it's a lion that's what it does and that's what sin does one more thing salvation cannot happen apart from the holy spirit and jesus is going to teach about the spirit later and we are going to see more about the spirit later but the holy spirit calls us to deny ourselves take up our cross and follow him the spirit enables us to cut off cut out these things which hinder both our salvation and our sanctification. So now the last two verses. They're sort of a trilogy of salt sayings. Boy, there's a lot packed in here, isn't there? A lot of things to think about from different perspectives. I'm really glad you're hanging in there with me. <laughs> Those of you who are. Several of you are praying for me. I appreciate that. But two terms here, fire and salt. For everyone will be, verse 49, for everyone will be salted with fire. Here's the second one. Salt is good, but if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? And then the last verse is the third one. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. These two verses have no parallel in any of the other Gospels. And this is, these are the verses that some people say are the hardest in the Gospel of Mark. Um, and honestly, I'm struggling with it still. Uh, first, how can the word fire be used for the good of a believer right after a context in which fire is the fire of hell. 
Can that, well, yeah, I guess it can, because how can Jesus be the lion of the tribe of Judah and Satan be a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour? Both images are true. In verse 50, Jesus says, salt is good. It's a preservative which delays decay and it imparts flavor. So yes, salt is good. That's a good thing. Then he warns, but if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Don't, don't lose that good thing that this is an image for. There is no salt for salt. I'll come back to this in a moment, but verse 50 concludes, have salt in yourselves. So it's clear that what he's saying includes the truth that salt is for our eternal benefit, right? And there's a shift from being salt, you are the salt of the earth, to having salt. But if you're to be salt, people who promote godliness, you're to have the salt of the word within you. And he concludes, be at peace with one another. Colossians 4, 6, listen to this. Your speech must always be with grace, as though seasoned with, guess what? Salt. So that you will know how you should respond to each person. That means being at peace with one another. So we're to be salted with salt, and that's to our eternal benefit. As a follower of Jesus, you have the resources to be salted with that you didn't have before. You have the salt of the Holy Spirit, the salt of the Word, the, that where God, Jesus says, sanctify them with the truth, thy word is truth. And you have the salt of people, if I can expand the illustration a little bit more, because we've got the body of Christ around us. Lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of people that come alongside and, and, and grow together. But I, I think that there may be something more here. If you look back up in verse 49, everyone will be salted with fire. And I think that that is a reference to the fact that all the grain offerings in the Old Testament were to be offered with salt. If you're living for Jesus, if you've cut off or cut out from your life, then your life is going to be an indictment of those who are living for themselves in this fallen world, and you will experience what 1 Peter calls fiery trials or persecution. But for a believer, that suffering, that salt, is purifying. Peter says this, 1 Peter 4, 12, and also 1 Peter 1, 7. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. And then in another chapter, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which perishes, though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So these two ideas, salt and sacrifice, were inseparable. They connect. So let's see how they, they hang together. And, and this is our, this is, we're getting close to, to finishing here. Salt in the sacrifice, when the Old Testament sacrifice was salted, that was a symbol of the covenant relationship, of, of your faith in the God who accepts the sacrifice who forgives you, from your, uh, forgives you of your sins. And then later on, Paul says this. You are to be the sacrifice. A living, not a dead, a living sacrifice. You are to be salted. 
And this sacrifice is not of your hand, your foot, your eye, or whatever. It's a sacrifice of your total self on the altar before Jesus. Do you remember how a few verses ago we studied how chapters Jesus was transfigured so that some of the disciples were given a glimpse of eternity? In Romans 12, 1 and 2, the term transformed by the renewing of your mind, uh, the, the idea of Jesus transfiguration comes in here. As living sacrifices, we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Here's where I want, I want to stay with me on this. The, in Romans 12, the word transformed is the same word as transfigured. It's the same word. In fact, that word occurs, occurs four times in the Greek New Testament. Two of them are of Jesus' transfiguration. Okay, That's in Matthew and Mark. The third one is in Romans chapter 12. The transformed. What it means is show on the outside what you are on the inside. This is who you have become in Christ. Work out your own salvation, Paul would tell the Philippians. So, show on the outside what you are on the inside. And here's the fourth time that word transformed, transfigured occurs. 2 Corinthians 3, 18. But we all with unveiled faces, looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. From glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Our word metamorphosis comes from this word. After salvation, you're a new creation. You're a butterfly. Stop thinking like a caterpillar. Don't crawl back in the cocoon. You have cut off those things. Gary, do you think that Jesus meant all those things that you just brought in and kind of tried to tie together? I actually think, yeah, and maybe more. Jesus often spoke better than we could understand. Gary, do you think that Jesus expected his listeners to understand all this? No. <laughs> no, because absorbing these truths is a gradual process, and we are still at it as we go and as we grow. But these verses do indeed contain dire warnings. Let's close with two thoughts. First of all, hell is real. If you've not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, please listen to Jesus' words. You cannot separate the love of Jesus from his warnings about hell. Atheistic philosopher Bertrand Russell years ago wrote his famous pamphlet, Why I'm Not a Christian. You know what his main reason was? Because Jesus believed in hell. You cannot separate the two. If you're a believer, are you telling people how not to go to hell? How that by grace you're saved through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, not of works, lest any man should boast? Atheistic entertainer Penn Gillette said, 
How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting hell is possible for them and not tell them that? If you ignore hell, then you take urgency out of evangelism and the Great Commission becomes the Great Omission, right? Second, and finally, are there sins in your life that need to be cut off and cut out? Is there something that is keeping you from following Jesus fully? Maybe that you don't want to acknowledge even to yourself because you think you've got that lion under control? Because it's so close to you that cutting it out feels like you'd be cutting off a part of your body? My daughter is a sculptor, and one year for Christmas she asked for wood carving tools. And if I were the block of wood that she was working on, I would be screaming in pain as things were cut off and removed and removed and removed and cut off. And what she was doing was she was taking away the things that should not be there. God is in the process of removing that which does not look like Jesus as we're conformed to the image of his son. Would you pray with me for a moment? Just bow your heads. I'm going to pray these words. Lord, even though this passage has heavy words, there's also grace here. There's also the magnitude of your unfailing love. There's also urgency. Show me what it means and what needs in my life to be cut off and cut out, to get rid of things that drive a wedge between me and you. I pray that for all of us. Empower us, Lord, by your spirit to do the radical surgery on our pride, our self-reliance, our self-satisfaction, our self-promotion, our self. Help us, Lord, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow you and to be transformed into the image of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.